Mama. Welcome back to another episode of the We See You Mama, a Cherished Mom Carecast. I'm your host, Christina Delaney, and today I'm thrilled to have Amanda with us. Amanda Osowski is a Chicago-based infertility and postpartum doula. The mom of an 11-month-old IVF success story, a Starbucks enthusiast, a Target marathoner, and a self-proclaimed momtographer. She sounds amazing, right? Well, she most certainly is. Amanda is passionate about educating, supporting, and cultivating new families through connection and community. Let me tell you, Amanda was such a joy to hear from, and I hope you feel the same. She has truly used her journey to help others in theirs, and it's inspiring. I honestly hope you enjoy this thought-provoking and honest conversation. Without further ado, let's get to Amanda's conversation. Mom, let me start over. Welcome to the We See You Mama at Cherish Mom Carecast. We're so excited to have Amanda Asowski. Did I say that right? You did. Good. Okay. Um, from Chicago, Illinois, here with us today to share her journey and all about what she, all about how that it led her to where she is today and how she supports mamas. Um, so welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much. Um, so let's just get right to it and yeah. um, start telling us about where, start at the beginning and wherever you want to start. Okay, absolutely. Um, hi, everybody. I'm super excited to be here with you today. Love, cherished mom and everything that you do. Um, I think that I'll start back in 2009. So I was just out of college and um, started struggling with really bad periods. I would get um, cramps so bad that I would vomit like during my last year of college and then during my, you know, the first year out of college. And I went to an OB and they told me, oh, it's, it's like probably endometriosis, but you know, the testing for that's like very invasive. So I'm just going to like give you some birth control pills. And if that works for you, like that's great. And, and you don't need to come back um, is basically what I was told. And so I started taking oral contraceptives, which was interesting for me because at that time at age 23, I still had not been sexually active. And so, um, you know, I, I had not been on birth control prior to that. Um, and that made me wonder kind of right off the get go, like, if I had endometriosis, would that impact my fertility or would any of this impact wanting to have a baby? I mean, I'd wanted to be a mom since I was 12 and started babysitting. And so um, kind of had that in the back of my mind. And about six months later, I started experiencing some really intense um, gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, and it actually took six and a half years of testing and in and out of the hospitals and really traumatic challenges with my health to be diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which ultimately um, had been impacted by my hormones, which was why I would get so sick when I had my cycles, not because I had endometriosis or a gynecological problem, but because I had Crohn's disease underlying sort of all of my health. And um, Crohn's disease has impacted every aspect of my life. Um, for those of you who don't know, Crohn's disease is a gastrointestinal disorder where the body essentially attacks itself. Um, 
and it can happen anywhere from your mouth to your anus and so really anywhere in the digestive tract and because mine my disease was located in my small bowel it was not caught by colonoscopies because they typically don't go through that very small area and so um, the road to diagnosis was really long and during that road I met my now husband um, and when we started dating I said to him you know I was still undiagnosed and I said look I've had you know trouble with my period I've been on all these medications for my health like I don't know if I'm going to be able to carry a baby, but that's also the thing I want most in this world. And we had a lot of conversations about what family looked like to us and what we were open to and, and kind of all of those things. And so um, before we even got married, we met with a maternal fetal medicine doctor. So a specialist in the area of conception and childbirth. And we went over all of my medications that I'd previously been on, that I was on currently. We went over, you know, at that time I knew I had Crohn's disease. So the things um, I was doing required to manage my health and my Crohn's disease. And we basically asked, like, is it safe for us to try to conceive naturally? And is there something you recommend or would you advise against it? And at the time, the doctor said, no, it's fine. Like, go ahead, you know sending you our blessings or, you know, there's not a lot of information about Crohn's disease directly impacting fertility. We just advise that you're in sort of a remission type state with your Crohn's disease. And so the autoimmune process is calm at the time that you try to get pregnant. But other than that, like, go for it. Go, good luck. And so, um, you know, went out and bought every ovulation kit and every downloaded every app that I could and, um, you know, felt excited and optimistic. And um, about six months into trying that, uh, my optimism was not as great. And at about nine months into trying to conceive, um, I reached out to my OB and I said, hey, you know, my cycle length varies between 32 and 39 days. Is it possible that I could do anything to better pinpoint my ovulation outside of, you know, OPKs or ovulation predictor kits? And, you know, is there anything that you can help me with? Like, you know, I really want to get pregnant. At this point, I was um, 31, 32. And so, like, not a, a young chicken anymore. Um, and I met with OB. She did a bunch of blood work. Everything came back normal. And she said, well, you know, you should have your husband go for a semen analysis. Like, just let's just make sure that he's good, too. And about three days later, um, my husband went and, uh, as they call it in the fertility world, gave a sample, um, which really, like, talk about making this as unromantic and unattractive as, as humanly possible. Um, and the following week, my OB called and said, hey, listen, um, I don't think you're going to be able to get pregnant without technology's help. And I was like, oh, okay. That's not what I was expecting. Um, and at that point in my life, I didn't know anyone who had gone through IVF or infertility treatments. Um, I just knew that most people I knew didn't really talk about sex or their sex lives or how they got pregnant, um, just that here was a baby. And um, to make a very long story short, at that point, uh, my husband and I had to wait three months to get in to see a reproductive endocrinologist. Um, we both underwent additional testing. And uh, about, so this was about a year and a half into our conception journey, um, we were told that we were diagnosed with unexplained infertility. So one in eight couples struggle with infertility or conceiving naturally. And of those, about 30% struggle with a female-related issue, 30% struggle with a male-related issue, 30% struggle with a female and male-related issue, and 10% is unexplained. And so it was 
um, a relief that nothing was like inherently wrong, um, but it was also really kind of frustrating and something we had to grieve that there was no medical or biological reason we had not been able to conceive on our own. Um, and so uh, our reproductive endocrinologist recommended um, intrauterine insemination, which was a less invasive type of infertility treatment. And so we had four rounds of failed IUIs. So that was four months that I went through treatment and each month was, you know, trying to symptom check and really optimistic that this was going to be our chance to get pregnant. And every time, every month for those four months, I still had a negative pregnancy test after the two week wait and was just really discouraged. And um, my husband and I had been really big mental health advocates um, through several organizations, both nationally and local here in Chicago, going into this experience. And as we started gearing up to do in vitro fertilization or IVF, um, we had a lot of conversation about how stigmatized it still was and how really upsetting that was to us that you know, we were working so hard in other arenas to help with the language around depression and anxiety and addiction and, um, you know, normalizing a lot of those conversations and making it known that it's okay to not be okay. And here we were, you know, struggling with a different issue, but a different issue that, again, no one was talking about. And so when I started IVF, um, my husband and I decided that we were going to be very vocal about our experience and shared all through um, letter boards on social media. And that was definitely received interestingly. Um, our families were a little taken aback by our putting such personal information online. Um, but on the flip, on the flip side, uh, we were greeted with messages from across the country and across the world from both people we knew and people we didn't saying, oh my gosh, thank you so much for sharing your story. My daughter or my son was conceived through IVF. I never told anybody or I didn't know anyone who went through this or, oh my God, I'm still trying to get pregnant and I didn't know anyone I could talk to about this. Like, what has your experience been? We were so grateful to follow your story. Thank you for answering our questions. And it became sort of this community like very quickly overnight. And so um, we started IVF in July of 2018 and we did an egg retrieval in a fresh embryo transfer, which failed. And so we went through a round of IVF that did not work. And um, we had three embryos frozen and then we chose to pay out of pocket for genetic testing, which is certainly a privilege that we had the option to do that. Um, insurance often doesn't cover that testing if it's not um, specifically warranted. And we were lucky enough to find out that the three embryos we had frozen were all chromosomally normal, which essentially meant that they could lead to a viable pregnancy. Um, and then in September of 2018, we transferred one embryo, uh, which eight days later, I got a positive pregnancy test, the first and only one I've ever gotten in my life. And I sustained a pregnancy with our daughter, who is now 14 months old. Um, but through my pregnancy and then uh, my delivery, I my water broke at 35 weeks, four days, and I delivered my daughter naturally, vaginally, uh, about 14 hours after my water broke in. So it was for a first time mom, very quick. Um, my daughter had a short NICU stay because she was a 35 weeker and um, she had trouble feeding. We triple fed for seven weeks. So I nursed her at the breast. I pumped breast milk and she was bottle fed that breast milk. And after several lactation consultants and struggles, um, I ended up choosing exclusive pumping, which worked for us for about six months. And then 
um, the strain that it was putting on my life and my milk supply and my mental health uh, led me to taper off and wean her at that point. Um, but during all this, I had a doula for my delivery and um, I ended up having a postpartum doula for support and was just kind of struck at the amount of connection and support these women were able to offer me. Um, I am not uh, in a tribe of women. I don't have sisters who have um, walked through this experience and shared it with me. And although I had some mom friends, um, I was woefully underprepared for what new motherhood would look like, which was really disappointing considering all the books I'd read and research I'd tried to do as someone who considered herself an academic and with a strong science background. And after, you know, sort of sharing my, continuing to share my experiences online of pregnancy and of postpartum times, um, I realized that all my life had kind of been groomed to end up as a doula myself, um, as an Enneagram 2 and a natural empathizer and the, the helper. Um, I've always kind of fit into that role of, of mothering the mother uh, to friends and family members and community members. and. Um, didn't really know much about doula practices or doula services until I utilized them with my own birth and, and my own postpartum experience. And so I um, took the opportunity to train and become a postpartum doula and really in the last uh, six months have begun to focus my specialty on working um, in that infertility space. So being an infertility doula, supporting people whose journeys have been similar to mine, uh, people whose journeys have been different, but in the same field, in the same space, um, just making sure that um, people know that they're not alone on the infertility journey, on the struggle to get pregnant journey, on the see a million negative pregnancy tests journey, and then support those same individuals as they do get through pregnancy and postpartum, regardless of what that looks like for them and their family. Um, and as a side note to that story, um, my husband and I had planned to do uh, another embryo transfer this past May for a second child, which was canceled due to COVID-19. And so I have been in the same weight as a lot of my clients have been in that um, you know, we have been trying naturally to conceive without success and that we are waiting for the opportunity to resume infertility treatments for our second child, uh, just like many of my clients are. So um, I know that that was a lot of information and a long story, but each piece of it kind of is what led me to where I stand before you today. Well, it's all so important and I can relate to some of it. I, I had infertility treatments myself with our first. Okay. I, I want to go back to the beginning because there's so much that's a part of struggling to get pregnant. Yeah. Um, and that in itself is emotional, but you know, the, the medications that you have to take. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk about that for a little bit. Because just those medications can, you know, create so many emotions day Absolutely. day. So you're not only emotional because of the process that you're in, but but you're emotional because you're being you're essentially being pumped full of hormones as well. Right. Um, one thing that I found very interesting then that I also find still interesting now is that. Um, 
most infertility treatment cycles begin with birth control. Um, they begin with an oral contraception in order to standardize your cycle and know exactly where you are in your cycle before you're given other medications. Um, and I thought that that was fascinating and slightly ironic that here I was trying to get pregnant and then taking the very thing that I'd been told all my you know, adult life would prevent pregnancy. So that has always been a fascinating part to me. Um, but yes, po um, for, I'll, I want to talk specifically about the IVF medications because for me, the IUI medications were not very impactful on my emotions. Um, when I went through IUI, besides having just the um, oral contraception, they essentially, um, there were several transvaginal ultrasounds and a trigger shot to make sure that I was ovulating right when they were planning for me to, and then the insertion of my husband's sample. Um, but when you transition into, into IVF or agar embryo freezing, um, the medications are, are significant. And, and not only are they significant in effect, but they're also significant in cost and delivery mechanism. And so um, when you go through the first portion of IVF is, is something called stims, where you're stimulating your ovaries to produce follicles, which will hopefully mature into eggs. And that process means loading your body up with hormones. And so for me, um, there were about three weeks straight where every single day, twice a day at very specific times, I was getting injections into my stomach and into my thighs, um, two or three injections in the morning and two or three injections in the evening, um, every single day, regardless of where I was or what I was doing. So um, I remember we had been out to dinner with a, a family friend and it was time for my injections and there was no family bathroom and my husband had been administering the injections to me but he couldn't come into the women's restroom with me of course and so we we actually just did them on my thigh right at the table um there wasn't really another option that would have been sanitary and you know we were on a time schedule and so after that experience we kind of realized like okay right now we need to just like be home at this point in time um but those hormones made me feel emotional. They made me feel angry at times and frustrated that I was having to do this, that, you know, I knew so many people who were joked about the ease at which they had gotten pregnant or that they, you know, blinked and they were pregnant or that, you know, it was their first try. And here I was literally sticking needles into my body to try to make a baby. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. The medications brought significant emotions for me. And then um, after the stims period, to prepare for an embryo transfer, uh, you have to use progesterone. And the two options are either usually as a vaginal insert or intramuscularly as an injection. And my protocol required the injection twice a day, uh, which meant that it could only go in one quadrant of my butt cheeks, which um, I'm not sure how flexible you are, but for me, I could not do it on my own. I couldn't reach the area with the accuracy that was required. And these needles were about the entire length of my index finger. Um, plus these intramuscular injections hurt. And so for me, it was, I had a 
you know, heat or ice before the injection. My husband had to massage in the medication once it was injected. And then I used the heating pad after the injection. And I just had huge bruises on my backside for, for, you know, the entire duration. And so for our first cycle, our first transfer, which failed, I did the shots for six days leading up to transfer and then two, uh, almost two weeks after transfer until I knew that the transfer was unsuccessful. And then when we did our frozen transfer, it was the same thing, six days up to transfer. And then um, about two weeks later, when we found out the transfer had been successful, you then continue them until you're nine or 10 or 11 weeks pregnant, depending on your clinic's protocol. And so that was like two months of these twice a day painful, time-consuming injections that made me emotional. They made me feel like I was PMSing literally all the time. They made me hungry. They made me cry at the drop of a dime. And, and yeah, and all this time I'm still, you know, seeing other people's new baby pictures and pregnancy announcements and just wondering like, is this all going to be worth it? Am I going to end up with a sustainable pregnancy? Is, is my miracle at the other end of this rainbow? Yeah. Yeah. You're so strong and amazing to share so much of that journey. Oh, thank um, you. And use it to help other people. Um, that's an amazing, amazing thing. Um, so I think that's wonderful of you. Thank you. Um, so while y'all were going through that, was it helpful and therapeutic to share so much of your journey um or was it hard or both um you know that's a really great question and i i think that the answer is both um we my husband and i talked at length before anything was shared about where we were at what we were comfortable with um and because we'd both been really open people, we'd both spent a lot of time um, previously advocating, talking about our own, you know, depression and anxiety battles and loved ones we'd lost to suicide, that we felt like it was really important to not only be open, but to be honest about the hard parts and the ugly parts and the scary parts, because we felt like we were walking through it blind. Like we didn't know anybody who had gone through it before. We didn't know what to expect. We didn't know what it was going to feel like. And we kept thinking like, well, if we can just help one other person or one other couple to know what to expect or to feel some sort of comfort that they're not alone, then like this will have been worth it. Um, but yeah, at the same time, it was really challenging and it opened up, um, it opened up conversations that we didn't always want to have in terms of, um, you know, having family members or friends ask us, you know, why we had maybe not done things like pray harder or, you know, go to acupuncture or different things that would have been um, perhaps less invasive or less expensive. Um, in, in order to conceive a child. And, and so we kind of had to come up with an elevator response, which was sort of just our off the cuff, like, you know, every family is built differently and this is how our family is being built by the miracle of science and the, you know, the pressure of, uh, or the, the miracle of science and the beauty of love. And that's like, we came, that response was sort of our traditional trigger response when um, people questioned our methods or, you know, how we had ended up where we were. Um, but on the flip side, it was also really 
screen to have people be like, oh my gosh, I remember that feeling or, you know, here's a, a trick for when you do the progesterone injections, like this, this thing really helped me out. And so um, I think it, it was definitely a mixed bag. I mean, the hardest thing for me obviously was when I had a post um, after our first embryo transfer, which was unsuccessful, that we were not pregnant. And uh, it was super emotional, but it also like we ended up with a lot of support and that sort of informed the rest of our decisions going forward because we actually chose to announce our pregnancy um, at about eight weeks pregnant, uh, which is early. It's early. A lot of traditional notes say that you're safer to, you know, think that you're maybe out of the scare of first trimester miscarriages or loss um, if you wait until 12 or 13 or 14 weeks. But here's the thing is that I knew if I miscarried, I wasn't going to be silent about it. And I knew that if that happened to me, if that happened to my baby, it was something that I was going to not only need and support for, but want to honor my baby's life by sharing and, right. and, and walking through that in the same way I walked through the creation of my baby. And so I, that was a very intentional choice. It wasn't naivety. It wasn't, um, you know, kind of jumping the gun. It was, it was very intentional. And um, same thing with my pregnancy. I mean, I, I vomited every day of my pregnancy from the day I found out I was pregnant until the day after I delivered my daughter. Um, and I tried Diclegis, which was worthless. I tried, I took Zofran every single day, which um, sometimes kept vomiting to once a day, but not always. Uh, and, and that was something I shared because I love being pregnant and I can't wait to be pregnant again, but that doesn't mean it was sunshine and rainbows it was hard. It was hard physically. It was, it was demanding. And I felt like, um, the other people in my life had done sort of a disservice by only sharing like the exciting things or their, you know, hopes and dreams for the baby's life. Again, I didn't know what to expect, expect. And I was so disappointed that I had been so underinformed, And I just decided that my narrative was going to be as truthful and as open as possible. Um, about all of it. And, and honestly, that has served me really well in, in now working as an infertility and a postpartum doula because um, I have a lot of writing that I can remember exactly what I was feeling and share that with my clients and, and giving them support that they are definitely not alone and that I, in fact, also walked through very similar feelings and emotions. So in, in hindsight, I'm really grateful that I did what I did, and I will probably do it the same way for our, for our next infertility journey, but it, it absolutely came with some emotional pieces as well. I'm sure. I'm sure. And I'm sure there's many people that are so appreciative of that openness, um, honesty, and vulnerability. Oh, thank you. Um, that y'all were able to provide. Um, and, you know, with the lens that I always have on with maternal mental health and seeing the, the journey that you all went through and um, the mental health aspect that you all already had. Yeah. Um, after you had the baby, even while you were pregnant, did anybody speak to that? So 
I feel like I was very educated about um, PPA, uh, postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety, PPA and PPD, um, because I personally live with depression and anxiety. Um, I take an antidepressant. I've been on an antidepressant since I was in my 20s, and I took it through my pregnancy, um, and I before pregnancy had anxiety medication to use as needed, which I wasn't able to use during my pregnancy. Um, but I worked with both a therapist and a psychiatrist during my pregnancy and a maternal fetal medicine team because of my Crohn's disease. And I knew that my metabolism would increase during pregnancy and that my antidepressant might also need to increase during the pregnancy. Um, and I knew my husband and I both knew what to look for um, postpartum. And I think it was almost like, too we were almost too educated because there I did experience like what I would safely call a like a touch of the baby blues like I was super hormonal I would cry at the drop of a dime but I never it never went beyond that and but I like analyzed it maybe more than I would have if I hadn't been so educated about um, PPA and PPD. And so, you know, a lot of times my husband would be like, do you think this is normal postpartum emotions or do you think that we need to call your doctor? And uh, I think that those conversations were really helpful. Um, but I, I do think that we were both acutely aware of my mental health in caring the baby and in delivering the baby and in processing things postpartum as well. Um, and I think that that also is, is not over. I think that the same conversations will happen with the next child. Um, and I think that being more, even more acutely aware as a trained doula now, um, it, it's something that will always be front of mind for me is just where is my mental health and how is this impacting it? Right. Well, that you seem, you, that's great that you were able to have those conversations um, with your husband as well as your providers. Absolutely. So, so incredibly important. Um, Cause I think a lot of, I think it's coming more to the forefront now, but I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, infertility miscarriages um, and those treatments are a big risk factor. Absolutely. And something I want to say in speaking to that is um, I think that the postpartum experience is different for infertility moms than for moms who conceive naturally. And um, my, the work that I do is very mindful of that because a lot of women, a lot of individuals who struggle through infertility um, in order to conceive have sort of the mindset or the fear that the other shoe may drop at some point. Um, you know, whether they've experienced failed fertility treatments or miscarriages or other types of losses, um, that fear of, you know, when is something going to go wrong? Not if, but when. Um, and I think that translates into the fourth trimester, into the beginning of the postpartum experience, that sort of skepticism that like your dream did come true, but like, oh, maybe this is too good to be true. Um, and I think that that's something that uh, individuals who and couples who conceived naturally just maybe have a different understanding of because that's not their experience. Um, and I think that it's, it's really important too, because when I went through my pregnancy and like I said, I loved being pregnant. I was very lucky in that regard, but I also was very sick in that regard. Um, people said to me all the time, like, oh, you shouldn't complain. Like you wanted this, like you went through expensive, difficult treatments to get here. Like you knew that this could happen. Like you, you don't have the right to complain. And that 
killed me, not because like of me personally, but it killed me that people think that that's the thing you can say to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, absolutely. I wanted a baby. Yes, absolutely. I was grateful for my pregnancy, but yes, absolutely. I was also throwing up every day. And so that idea that like, I can be grateful and exhausted or grateful and sick. Um, that is a huge thing. And so in that postpartum period, the fact that I could be grateful and overwhelmed or grateful and emotional or grateful and sad, that was really, really huge for me to walk through and interpret, understand. And now it's something, it's the very first thing that I work with clients on. Um, I think that emotions are super complex when it comes to fertility and when it comes to parenthood. And I think that and is a very big word and it's a very important word. And that is to say that regardless of how thankful, grateful, blessed you are, there is also space to feel whatever else you're feeling physically, mentally, and emotionally. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a very good point. And it, you know, it goes right along with you know, having the baby. Yeah. You know, you can be very grateful and feel blessed and have this bundle of joy, but you're also very exhausted. Yeah. And you can say you're exhausted and need a break. A hundred percent. And no, that's a hundred percent. And two things I thought of when you said that the first is, is that the first maybe like four weeks, three, four weeks of my daughter's life, I kept saying to my husband in like the quiet moments, like, I really miss her being inside. Like I felt a sense of loss almost. Mm. Like I was so excited obviously that she was here and that I could see her and, and what she looked like. But when she was inside, I knew she was safe. I knew she was happy. I knew she was getting what she needed, um, even though she was clearly taking it from me. But I had, that was a hard transition for me. Um, I really like almost grieved the loss of, of having a baby in in my womb. Um, and the other thing was, is that I had no idea that I was going to lose my own identity, um, becoming a mother. And in the first month of my daughter's life, um, I was really taken aback by the fact that literally not one person besides my husband and my doula asked me how I was. They only asked how she was like, how's the baby? How's she eating? How's she sleeping? How's this? How's that? And all of a sudden I turned to my husband and I said, I'm not Amanda anymore. I'm only Brooklyn's mom. And he said, no, you're still Amanda. And I said, it doesn't feel like it. And that began a a course of action for me and really working to find who I was, not just who I had been, but who I now was as a mother and on the other side of this pregnancy. And I think that that's something that first-time moms really are not ever spoken to about. And it's a shame because it's something, even if you don't think you can prepare for being aware of that transition is huge. And I thought I was doing something wrong at first because I was like, I literally don't feel like myself. Like I literally don't even remember what Amanda liked to do or eat or anything. And I just didn't know that that was going to happen. And so absolutely. I think that, but, but both of those things were going on and I was still grateful for the baby I'd fought so hard for. So I, I just want to circle back to that and part. Um, I think it's really discredited for new moms a lot of times or new parents in general. And I think that's really unfair. Absolutely. I agree. And it's the conversation that we've been having for so long, or at least for advocates that were always yelling that, 
you know, moms are forgotten Yep. after the baby's here. Cause you, you have all these appointments to check up on the baby and the yep. wing, but once the baby is born, they're going to all these pediatrician appointments, Yep. but the mom has this one appointment and that's it. And that's it. Absolutely. Um, so absolutely. And you were saying, you know, you delivered early, the yes. baby had a NICU stay, yes. you were exclusively pumping. So of course you grieved, you know, the, the baby not being in your womb anymore because yeah. you, know, you didn't have that full time. Right. Um, and yeah. I mean, she was four, uh, four and a half weeks early, which is, I mean, we're super lucky that it was only four and a half weeks early. And I know a lot of moms have a much earlier experience, but yeah, I mean, I thought I still had another month and change left in my pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and everybody was asking about the baby cause she was in the NICU for a short time. Right. So, um, and if, I absolutely agree that, you know, people don't ask about moms um, no. nearly enough. Um, and we're, you know, just there to feed the babies and take yeah. care of them. And it's just not, it's not, it's not fair. No, it's, um, and honestly, that was a big thing that led me to doula work was the um, desire to care for moms in the way that I was not cared for in my postpartum experience. Um, and it's not, it wasn't anyone's wrongdoing per se. It was just that the education wasn't there. And, you know, we no longer in, in America, we don't live in, in that culture or that time where, you know, families sort of come together and allow the mother to rest or, you know, not need to do anything or whatever. I mean, I remember feeling so much anxiety about writing thank you notes when I was two, three weeks postpartum, you know, people were sending baby gifts and, and uh, a family member asked like, Oh, did you send a thank you note to so-and-so? And I was like, Oh my gosh, I haven't yet. And so he, I remember just in the middle of the night sitting in my kitchen, pumping breast milk and writing thank you notes. And I was like, this is not what this, like I thought this would feel like, like this obligation to other people should not be here. And it was for me, it was hard. And so that as a doula is one of the biggest things I, when I walk into a client's home, um, the first thing I ask is, how are you to the birthing parent? How are you to the non-birthing parent? How are you to the sibling if there is one? And then how's the baby? Tell me how things are going. Um, and that is completely shaped by my own experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That that's a very good practice. Cause you know, the baby can't answer. Correct. Um, Absolutely. Only the parents can. Right. Um, so tell me what is your background? Yeah. So, um, I have a very science-based background. Um, I have a BA in biochemistry cell and molecular biology. Wow. I have a BS in neuroscience and I have an MPH in public health. So um, I had spent several years prior to this uh, working in the clinical research industry in um, both working with patients and families and then working in patient recruitment, creating um, campaigns to make sure that patients were able to find and enroll in the clinical trials that were specific to their conditions. So a lot of patient advocacy has um, been part of my background, both in my own health journey and in my work, and has been a very important part of my transition into being a doula. Amazing. So you um, became a doula after you had your little girl. I did. That's correct. Okay. 
And I think that uh, being an infertility doula, I think you're the first infertility doula I've actually talked to. Well, that makes me happy. Um, It makes me happy because it's a huge need Mm -hmm. and it makes me happy because I am not necessarily trying to pioneer a new place, but I'm trying to make sure that there's support for people who need it. And it has been vastly ignored up until this point. Yes. Yes. And I I think it's an amazing thing. Um, And I'm extremely excited that uh, we will be having you lead our infertility support group, which Absolutely. this Wednesday, which is tomorrow. Oh my gosh. Um, that's so wild. I feel like, I mean, obviously just with life that this whole summer has just been a blink. I know. I know. And my kids, this is pre-recorded, so it feels weird to say this, but my kids started school yesterday. Wow. We're pre-recording this last week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're starting school all virtually. So y'all uh, that's, that's one thing, honestly, I am not at all envious of. I, I said to my husband, I'm, I'm really grateful we don't have a school aged kid yet because that's a lot. It's a lot to juggle. I give my, my, ha- my hat goes off to every parent everywhere. And no matter what the, your decisions are about your kids in school this year, my heart goes out to you because this is hard. Every single part of this is hard. And whether your kids are at home and you're also trying to work or your kids are in daycare or at school and you're trying to work, every decision is hard. I see you. I respect you. And just I know that you're doing the best you can with the situation that you have at hand. And so I hope that you take a deep breath and know that you're doing your best. Too. I second that. That's very well said, and I second that. And no matter what decisions anybody makes, yep, absolutely, good, good mamas, yep, a hundred percent. We can only make the best decisions for ourselves and our families. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, It just feels weird to say, you know, because this is all pre-recorded. Yeah, absolutely. Started school yesterday here, so that's Um, wild. But anyway, yes, we hope you will. Anyone can join. It will be. on the first Wednesdays of the month um, at 11 o'clock Eastern. So that is 10 o'clock Central and y'all nine o'clock on. Mountain, eight o'clock Pacific. See, that is why we have people like Amanda <laughs> that can do the conversions because I cannot. No worries. Anytime I have to do a conversion, it is Google Eastern to <laughs> yep. conversion time, please. Yep. Because I can't. I can't convert time zones. That's okay. Um, so we hope that anybody who needs that support will join us um, or join Amanda um, with that support group. It's I'm sure will be wonderful. Um, and I believe we have people signed up already, which is fantastic. Excellent. Um, but again, that will be the first Wednesdays of the month at go ahead and say those time zones. Yep. So it's going to be 11 (laughs) a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central, 9 a.m. Mountain, 8 a.m. Pacific. Perfect. Um, And we're so glad that I I think this was one of my favorite podcasts already. Oh, thank you. So important to have this conversation and to understand what to say, what not to say, and just to honor the journeys of 
people that have struggled with infertility loss um, and how we can better support those individuals and um, not be afraid to talk and have those hard conversations. Absolutely. Um, and, and one thing on that note that I'd really like to suggest is if you are supporting someone who is or has struggled with infertility or loss, um, the best advice that I can give is to say, I'm so sorry. I hear you. I see you. Anything that you'd like to share about your experience, I am here to listen. Um, and that is, is sort of the recommendation that I make on, on the most open way to support other people without being invasive because sometimes they do want to talk about it and sometimes they don't want to talk about it and sometimes they're not sure if they want to talk about it. Um, but just letting them know that you see them and you hear them and that you support them, that's really, really incredible and really powerful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And You're welcome. Thank you for sharing with us today and um, inviting us in to share with your journey and experience. And thank you for everything you do to support this community. Um, and we will look forward to supporting you along the way and um, helping to build the support group that's going to be so wonderful. Um, so thank you all for listening. And if you have any questions or anything, we will put Amanda's contact information in the um, show notes. And we look forward to hearing from everybody and we hope everyone has a wonderful day.